In uh, 1884, actually 1844, I misread that, Alexander Dumas wrote The Count of Monte Cristo, a book that captivated my attention as a young man and is still ranks in the top 10 books, uh, uh, my favorite 10 books ever. Uh, some see The Count of Monte Cristo as a tale of revenge. I totally understand the sentiment, why, why people would go there. I, for me, the book is about a longing for justice in a horribly corrupt world. If you don't know the story, if you just need a refresher, it takes place in uh, 1815 when Napoleon Bonaparte is uh, in exile on the island of Elba. The protagonist, Edwin Dantes, is a sailor, the first mate on a ship, and he had just returned home. His captain had fallen ill and would no longer be able to be a sailor, and so he passes the rank of captain on to the first mate, Edwin Dantes, at 19 years old. His year was looking good, and to book to, uh, to polish it all off, he's about ready to marry the love of his life, the beautiful, the beautiful Mercedes. Everything's going well until the conspiracy. Unbeknownst to him, Edwin's success had made him some enemies. First off was his close friend, Ferdinand Bandego, who was in love with Edwin's fiance, Mercedes. Second was the second mate of the ship, uh, Denglar, who was jealous of Edwin because even though he was only second mate, he was older and more experienced. Through the help of a corrupt politician and taking advantage of Edwin's trustworthy nature, they concocted a plan to accuse Edwin Dantes of high treason by framing him as a supporter of Napoleon. On the night of his wedding to Mercedes, he was arrested and brought to a rigged trial where false evidence was brought before him. Before due process was even completed, Dantes was sent away for life to an island prison, Chateau d'If. There's so much more to the story than that, but I just want to pause here for a minute. I remember the first time I read The Count of Monte Cristo. I remember the horrible feeling in my gut. It was the injustice of it all, the feeling that from the beginning, the system was rigged for Edwin Dantes. The fact that the trial, even the illegal, informal version of a trial in the book, was so corrupt. The cold finality of evil men and how they could ruin the life of another because of their power and their position and their collusion. And that they could do it so quickly, so permanently, and without remorse. And of course, we continue to see this type of injustice today. It's the journalist or the humanitarian worker taken captive on false charges by a jihadist group. Or the missionary held prisoner in North Korea, falsely accused of spying. No evidence, no due process, lives forever changed by injustice. And of course, it happens right in our own country today. Racial profiling, harsher sentences and higher conviction rates for African Americans and Latinos and indigenous populations. And then when the tables are turned, when there is injustice against people of color, we often see horrible, unjust acquittals. George Zimmerman goes free after shooting an unarmed Trayvon Martin, a, a teenager with a hoodie. The LAPD is acquitted after the brutal Rodney King shooting. Trials are intended to reveal truth, are they not? They're intended to allow witnesses to events to speak so that justice may be served. Trials are designed to shed light, to reveal reality, to convict the guilty, 
and to acquit the innocent. And somewhere deep inside this, don't we know that to be true, that that's how it ought to be? Humans, beings made in God's image, have an innate desire for justice. And for those with semi-functional consciences, the reality of injustice creates anger and fear, sadness, and hopefully, hopefully motivation to work for justice. In our story this evening, we will see Jesus on trial. We will see corruption, irony, sin, and failure on the part of the justice system. But we will also see in a powerfully ironic way that the trial of Jesus will in the end reveal the truth. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us by the power of your spirit as we enter into this text that may be overly familiar to some, that may read like a history account to others, that may be mere information, but for your spirit giving it life. Holy Spirit, give this text life. Help us to resonate with what you went through, to identify part of the story you want us to identify with and to come to see how gracious and amazing and majestic you are. Amen. During the season of Lent, we have been engaged in a sermon series for the past few weeks called The Direction of Glory. The series follows Jesus through the final days leading to his crucifixion and his resurrection according to the Gospel of Luke. We've been discovering that true glory is not revealed in opulence or the size of one's entourage or the greatness one has in the eyes of the world. Instead, greatness is when someone with power and authority empties themselves for the glory of God and for the redemption of other people. Our passage this evening is long. And if we, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna break it up. And we're gonna think of this, I hope, this is my idea. We're going to think of it as a play with four acts. And so we're not going to do a bunch of standing. I'm not going to read it to you for 10 minutes, but we're going to take this one act at a time. So let me read act one, which is Luke 22. Feel free to, I encourage you to follow along. It's always good to have your face in the book. Um, it's Luke 22, 66 through 71. And this is act one. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus was arrested in the night. He was brought to the house of the high priest. There he was questioned illegally because he was not charged with any crime when he was arrested. He was abandoned by his own disciples. He was beaten by the temple guards and he was mocked. Act one takes place the next morning. Still at the home of the high priest, Jesus is brought before the assembly of the priests and the elders, an assembly called the Sanhedrin. Traditionally, a Sanhedrin was a judicial council made up of 70 
priests and elders, and the high priest would preside over that council. Strict rules governed how a Sanhedrin functioned. Strict rules like the proceedings were supposed to take place at the temple, not in a high priest's home. A two-day waiting period was required before a verdict could be declared, not one portion of a day like in our story. Conflicting witnesses against the defendant were to be thrown out as inadmissible, but Matthew's gospel tells us that repeatedly witnesses testified against Jesus with conflicting stories, but they weren't thrown out. The defendant was supposed to be allowed representation, witnesses in their favor, but instead this mob that illegally seized Jesus had scared away all of his friends. Whether or not they would have been allowed to testify is doubtful anyway. So from the outset, we see that the trial of Jesus is unjust. Now, as the story goes, the council asked Jesus directly, are you the Christ? Christ is a Greek word, translating the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. They want to know if Jesus claims to be the promised Messiah, the anointed agent of God sent to deliver the people of God. (coughs) Jesus knows that if he says no, Well, he wouldn't be telling the truth. But if he said yes, then he would be misunderstood. Jesus was the Messiah, but not in the form or the mold that the current religious people thought of. Rather than answer their prefabricated, overly simplistic question, Jesus quotes from the prophet Daniel, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The quote refers to this anointed one receiving a kingdom and ruling that kingdom from the right side of the throne of God himself. The biblical reference was not lost on the Sanhedrin. They knew it was a claim to be the son of God. And so they asked him directly to which he replied, you say that I am. Again, Jesus shows himself wise and astute. His accusers have asked if he was God's son. He doesn't necessarily confirm the claim, and he certainly doesn't deny it. He simply points out that those are the exact words that had come out of their mouths. And apparently, or obviously, it was enough to condemn Jesus in their eyes. Now, let's take a step back just for a minute and voice the irony of the situation. The priests and the elders of the temple. They exist, like they they have one job. Uh, they, They exist to lead people in worship of the living God, to sing his praises, to know his word, to follow his law, and to pray for and to wait for the coming of the Messiah. Now they have the Messiah actually before them. They have God. The God that they worship is standing before them in the flesh, and they fail to see could be the reason for that it's always bad form in interpreting scripture or really any text to psychologize or to fill in the gaps with things we don't know (laughs) but let's just say (laughs) one fact (laughs) let's just pose a fact let's just pose a fact that we do know the high priest was known as the anointed one of god while awaiting the messiah the priesthood was imbued with great power and great influence and great position in society They were the stewards of the temple until God came to dwell among them. Kind of like Denethor, the steward of Gondor. Okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) Nerd moment. Okay, if they concede that this guy in the grubby clothes that they just beat up and arrested in the Mount of Olives, if this guy, Jesus, was the Messiah, then they would have to lay down their power 
and authority. So in Act 1, it appears as though Jesus is on trial, but in reality, the religious establishment is on trial. If trials are intended to reveal the truth, this trial does just that. The truth is that lust for power and autonomy has blinded the religious leaders so badly that they condemn the one they claim to worship and they don't even know it. And I wonder, if we take this a step further, if we are in some degree on trial here too. After all, if Jesus is truly king, if he is the son of God, then we are his subjects, not his fans. He's our king, not our wonder worker. We are his servants, not free agents. And if we take a moment, because my mother taught me always to assume the best in people, and if we assume the best out of these religious leaders, if we assume that they are so passionate about upholding God's law and so motivated to weed out false prophets that they were blinded by a hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we can at least learn that preemptive justice without trial is no justice at all. And we can at least learn that an attitude of the ends justifies the means is not adequate. That short-circuiting justice because of false assurances and prejudice leads to gross injustice. Okay, we can at least learn that. Act two. Starting now in chapter 23, verses one through seven. Then the whole body of them, that's the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, You said it's, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. The religious leaders had a legal technicality that they couldn't get around they were not allowed to practice the death penalty since they were in occupied Roman territory. Now, from time to time, the Roman governors would look the other way if the Jewish uh, leaders would enforce their laws on things like adultery or high treason against the temple, blasphemy against the, the actual temple. They would sometimes look the other way if these people would stone their own people. But almost every other time, Execution is something reserved for the oppressor. It was Rome's way of reminding everyone, we let you live in this land and we'll tell you when you're allowed to die in this land. So the leaders brought their case to the local provincial, provincial governor named Pontius Pilate. They knew Pilate wouldn't care in the least that some Jewish guy traveling around with a bunch of women and a few disciples was claiming to be the religious savior of a backwoods nation oppressed by the Roman Empire. Like he wouldn't care but they did know how to push Rome's buttons. And they knew two things that Rome really cared about. They cared about money, and they cared about power. Sound familiar? 
The same story, every generation, <laughs> every nation. First, they claim that Jesus was leading people astray by encouraging them not to pay taxes to Caesar. This was completely untrue, right? Luke 20, 22 has the story. When asked by authorities if it's lawful or not to pay taxes to Rome, Jesus replied, and I quote, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus has no problem paying taxes. Why would the religious leaders make such a claim even though Jesus never discouraged people from paying taxes? Well, because Pilate didn't know that. Jesus had no witnesses to say otherwise. And one of Pilate's main two jobs were to keep the peace and ensure taxes were collected and given to Mother Rome. If Jesus were discouraging the payment of taxes, Pilate's job would be in danger. But the accusation that really got Pilate's attention is the claim that Jesus may have been making himself out to be some sort of king. Pilate asks him directly whether or not he's king of the Jews, to which Jesus replies in the, in the Greek literally, you've said so. Again, not denying the claim because it's actually true, uh, but also not claiming the title of king because the title of king in the ancient world or any time period is loaded with baggage that Jesus didn't want to import on himself. Pilate looks at this bleeding, seemingly powerless Jew standing before him. He had no love for the Jewish people and especially the leaders who he had offended many times on purpose just to get their goat. Now, whether out of spite or out of insufficient evidence or simply out of unbelief that Jesus could possibly be any threat to the empire, Pilate declares Jesus innocent. Pilate represents the empire. In Act 2, it appears as though Jesus is on trial. But in reality, the empire is on trial. If trials are intended to reveal truth, this trial does just that. The truth is that the arrogance and power and privilege of this empire blinds them from the truth. Standing before Pilate is Jesus, not only king of the Jews, but king and creator of all things. And while Jesus is guilty of no crime in this situation, he is a threat to Pilate, and he is a threat to all empires that stand at odds with the kingdom of God. Pilate sees Jesus as a naive upstart, but not any substantial threat. You know, other false messiahs, were actually crucified by the Roman Empire. So Jesus wasn't even seen as that much of a threat. But the great irony is that by the fourth century, Rome would be well on its way to becoming the center of Christianity for the next millennium. And the empire, as Pilate knew it, would be gone. And perhaps we too are on trial here. Are we guilty of seeing Jesus as a nice guy, a benevolent savior who represents our Disney-like view of sentimental niceness? Don't the scriptures show something else? Jesus calls us to the type of love that alters our allegiances, transforms our hearts, and topples our selfish agendas. Let's be careful not to dismiss Jesus as irrelevant, or to relegate him to the private religious part of our lives. Because if he's king at all, he's king of all. So at Pilate's dismissal of Jesus, the religious leaders fear that they may be losing momentum. So they press further, claiming that Jesus was stirring up dissension up in the area of Galilee. 
Pilate can't ignore dissension. Remember, he's got two jobs. Get the taxes, keep the peace. But once he hears that Jesus is doing stuff up in Galilee, ah, that guy Herod, King Herod, he has jurisdiction in Galilee. Just so happens that Herod is in town for the Jewish festivals. And he's probably at his family palace, the palace of the Hasmoneans, which is a 10-minute walk from Pilate's pad. And so he has Jesus marched in that direction. And that's Act 3, which is Luke 23, 8 through 12. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he'd been hearing about him, and he was hoping to see some kind of miracle, some kind of sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before, they had been enem enemies with each other. If the religious leaders represent the religious establishment, and Pilate represents the empire, Herod represents the powerful secular elite who have put their faith in their social privilege and their social connections, and for whom religion is just a novelty, an accessory, an accessory to their life, and if possible, a way to advance their social standing. That's why things like Scientology are so appealing to the wealthy and the famous. First of all, it requires great effort, which appeals to people with a large ego, and it presents opportunities to mingle with the social elite. Other celebrities and high-profile individuals are famous for practicing what we call smorgasbord religion, which is I'll take a little piece of Buddhism, that's kind of cool, but not the strict stuff, and then a little bit of Hinduism, uh, maybe some cool mystic Judaism, some Kabbalah, and, uh, and that gives me something to meditate on while I'm in my hot yoga class. But it doesn't really require the life change that Jesus is talking about. Herod is like that. He'd been hoping to have an audience with Jesus and to see some of his mighty deeds. He wants a spectacle. He'd have been better off hiring a, a, a birthday party magician to do tomb tricks or jump out of the Aztec tomb because... Jesus is not a sideshow. Thank you. Like most big babies who don't get their way, Herod grows bored with Jesus. He doesn't see what he wants to see, so he uh, is prevented then from seeing the truth of who Jesus really is. And so he joins with his cronies in beating and mocking Jesus and clothing him in royal robes and sending him back to Pilate. Before this event, Herod and Pilate had a contentious relationship, to say the least. Pilate was constantly doing things to rile up the, the Jewish sensibilities of Herod's people, who was himself an egotistical maniac who fumed over anything that Pilate did. One time, Pilate had these, I think they were bra yeah, these bronze shields engraved with pagan symbols, and he made them, put them in uh, Herod's palace because Herod's palace was actually something owned by the empire and oh, Herod was furious and had him kicked out. Herod called his boss, the emperor, and said, you can't have him do this. And so there's this big fight. It's all in Josephus and these other historical writings. It's really hilarious to read. Big men with big egos acting like big, big babies. But after this episode, the scripture says they became friends. And I like this quote by N.T. Wright who says, there's a wonderful irony in the newfound friendship of the, the Jewish king, Herod, and the Gentile ruler, Pilate. 
Luke's whole book has spoken of the gospel reaching out into the lands beyond, beyond official Judaism, beyond the racial and geographical boundaries of Israel, beyond prejudice, beyond blindness, bringing together Jew and Gentile, young and old, the hated Samaritan and the tax collector. Now, even without believing in Jesus, Herod and Pilate are reconciled. It's as though with Jesus on the way to the cross, reconciliation can't help but breaking out into the world. And it's a false reconciliation, of course, but it's the foreshadowing of what would come through the resurrection of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit in his church. It's what things like Ephesians is all about, right? Colossians. This leads us to Act 4, Luke 23, 13 through 25. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and, catch this, all the people. And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. But they cried out, all together saying, Away with this man! and release for us Barabbas. Now, he was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I'll punish him and I'll release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. So, Act 4, now we return to Pilate. And he's called together the religious leaders, and for the first time, The crowd of the common people, the oklos in the Greek, which just means the everyone, not just the the religious leaders. Pilate begins by asserting the innocence of Jesus. Then he moves to remind them that Herod has also found Jesus innocent of any charge deserving death. But in an effort to appease these crowds, Pilate agrees to have Jesus whipped, have him beaten and whipped. But he underestimates the frenzy that was building in the crowd. And instead of being satisfied with Jesus' punishment, they call for an exchange. The notorious Barabbas, a convicted Jewish revolutionary who had been found guilty of murder and terrorism in exchange for the execution of Jesus. Pilate claims Jesus' innocence a third time. And the careful reader will hear that in comparison to Peter, who in last week's story had denied Jesus three times. In the end, Pilate acquiesces to the demands of the crowd. He completely mishandles his role as judge, and he condemns Jesus to death while setting Barabbas free. Now, why the crowds would want Barabbas over Jesus is hard to say. Maybe it's a simple function of pragmatism, At least Barabbas had fought for the Israelite cause against the oppressor. Jesus seemed to be a frustrating, anticlimactic fraud. 
In the end, Barabbas, whose name in Hebrew means son of the father, irony, is the first person saved by the death of Jesus. There is a literal exchange of life for life. In these four acts, we see all the known world put Jesus on trial. The religious establishment, the empire, the privileged elite, world powers, the oppressed crowds with their angry uprising and their misplaced scapegoating. Take note that it's not just big corporations and not just big government that's on trial here. It's the 99 percenters as well because they don't handle their business justly. How ironic that arguably the nation with the greatest moral law in history, the Jewish nation in the ancient world, and the nation with the greatest judicial law in history, the Roman Empire, get this thing so messed up and have a complete miscarriage of justice. Doubly ironic is that their failure paves the way for God's plan of salvation. You can't make this stuff up. Trials are designed to shed light and to get to the truth of a matter. And the truth of this passage is that the whole world is on trial. And we, that's right, I said we, have been found guilty. The truth has been put on trial, and what we find is that Christianity is not a set of laws or ethics or philosophy. It is about a person named Jesus the Christ. The particularity of Jesus and no other. The exclusivity of Jesus' rule and reign and no other. The specificity of Jesus as the way and the truth and the life and no other. These truths are offensive to every culture, to every generation, and to every ounce of sin and autonomy that lives within my heart and yours. And that is exactly why Jesus died for us. Because in our stubbornness and fear and our pride and in our blindness, we needed a God, a rescuer, who would come to us, who would reach out for us, who would find us when we were too blind and too far gone to see him, let alone love him. Let's pray. I don't even know what to say, Lord, and I've been studying this for weeks now. take a note out of the book of Ecclesiastes and recognize whose presence I'm in and allow us to be still before you. I thank you. I just, I just thank you. Because I'm I'm guilty of all of these things represented in these trials. And I'm thankful that the point of the story isn't to point out our fallenness and our guilt. It's to point out that you still loved so much to rescue us in our fallen state. That in our blindness, you reach down and grab hold of us. And I pray for the grace to respond well to you, Lord. 
trust you to give up, to continue to let go of my facade of control 